All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Those kids have their own paparazzi that come with them. Did you see that? They read. It's just so good to see you guys. And, um, you know, I, th- I know that uh, Hannah already mentioned the Focus 2020, the Through the Bible, and uh, I've been so blessed just starting out this new year, of course, starting back on another course through the Bible. And I have to say, one of the things that's really ministering to me, of course, God's Word is ministering to me, but uh, I have to say what's ministering to me equally is the comments that a lot of you guys are making. I'm in like five different groups, you know. Actually, only in one of the groups am I checking off. One of the guys this morning told me I was four days behind in my reading. But I'm actually on schedule. I'm just not checking it off. But just seeing some of the things that you guys are posting and the way that the Spirit is ministering, it's really refreshing and just uh, so very encouraging. So as she said, if you're not already in a group, we'd love you to join a group. Um, There's a link right from the church website that you can jump in and just jump in on day whatever, five or, or whatever it is, um, make up the last days if you want to, or don't, just jump in where, you, where we are and, uh, and read with us. So um, turn this morning to Second Kings. We're going to be in chapter 6 this morning, and uh, just something that the Lord had, uh, had sort of laid on my heart for uh, the beginning of the new year, and uh, hopefully it, it speaks to us. Um, you know, the, the, the excitement, of course, not only of a new year this year, but of a brand new decade, right? And a, a chance to change, a chance especially as we head into the 20s, right, to consider our vision, right? There's been, there have been, there will continue to be no shortage of clever references to, you know, having 2020 vision for the year or having a fresh vision or having new vision or a a clear focus or a refocus and all those kinds of things. We see them in the media, we hear them, um, but I do like a lot of these references because I think that they remind us, especially as it comes to the things in the spirit of the importance of clear vision into that realm of the spirit. And I think we all understand that there is a spiritual realm. I mean, the Bible, we read about powers and we read about principalities and we read about these battles that happen in the spiritual realm. But what's interesting is that we actually only get a few glimpses of it throughout the whole of the scripture. And yet this morning, and this text, is one of those times. And it's a passage where we get to see the unseen. And we get a glimpse at how the spiritual realm really participates and really interacts with our human realm. And we're going to look at a series of kind of strange miracles in the way that God was dealing with the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, how often, I think, for any of us here, uh, it's so easy to be confused, right, about the things that we see happening around us or the things that are happening directly to us. And we are confused because we're trying to understand the motives of people sometimes, you know, whether it's our spouse or maybe it's our boss, and maybe sometimes it's even ourselves. And we, we're stuck kind of wondering, you know, why is it that I'm feeling like this? Why are we fighting about this thing? Or why can't I just seem to get through this 
issue in my life. And oftentimes we wonder why things happen the way that they do, and, and we wonder why things don't happen the way that they should have happened. And what we need to understand is that we, we really will never understand what's happening in our world or in our lives until we start to understand what's really behind all of those events. And that's that constant workings of a very faithful father working in the unseen realms of the spirit. And we need to understand that there is so often more than meets the eye that's really going on. And that's what we're going to see pictured today in the life of a, a pretty mysterious man from the pages of the Old Testament. So let's pray and just ask the Lord that he would show us some things this morning and really just bless our time uh, in the word. Father, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for this new year. Lord, we thank you for the turn of the page of a calendar. And Lord, while these days are no different than the days were last week, uh, Lord, there's a freshness and there's an anticipation, Lord. And that's the way we want to approach not just the year, Lord, but approach our relationship with you. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you'd speak to us. Lord, that you truly would open our eyes, Lord, open the eyes of our hearts that we would see you, Lord. Minister to us today, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So the prophet Elisha, right, he's a man who stood for the Lord in the midst of a very dark period in the history of the nation of Israel, and his name means God his salvation, and we know that he first appears, Elisha first appears as a disciple of Elijah. And all of you Bible students, of course, know that Elisha then succeeded Elijah. And remember when he did, he asked for and he took on a double portion of Elijah's spirit, right? The spirit of the Lord through which you know, Elijah had done all of these miracles. And what's interesting is that as we look at Elisha's life, what we find is that there were exactly twice as many miracles as he performed than Elijah performed. And just this morning, in this one single chapter, we're going to look at several of these miracles. Some of them were performed kind of privately for God's people personally, we might say, and some were much more public. They were done on behalf of the nation collectively. But what I think is great is that in each of these cases, we see that here, Elisha, as a servant of God, he's never at a loss to know the will of God or to exercise the power of God because he understands his God. And he understands the ways that God is working in the spiritual realm. We all are familiar with what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, he said that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And that's precisely the truth we're going to see illustrated powerfully this morning. We're going to see it right away as we jump into the text. We have this kind of a strange account in the first seven verses of the finding this lost axe head. Or we might even say that they lost their cutting edge. It says there in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 6, it says that the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan 
And let every man take a beam from there, and let us make there a place where we may dwell. And he answered, go. So here, basically, this is one of the prophet schools, right? The dorms there had become a little bit too small because the number of guys who wanted to be ministered to and trained by Elisha was growing. Now, this right off the bat is especially encouraging because what it reminds us is that even in the midst of what was then a spiritually bankrupt nation, Right? We know that the current leadership, right, King Jehoram, we know that he wasn't walking with the Lord. We know that the people were far from the Lord. And yet we see that God still has his faithful servants who set themselves apart and want to serve and honor him. And I think that for us living here, when we do and where we do, this should be a huge encouragement. Amen? Because this area where we live, this beautiful Silicon Valley, is not the most godly place in our country. In fact, I think it still ranks as one of the ten least churched areas in the nation. And yet, what a reminder that God always preserves himself a faithful remnant. And the fact is, we are part of that remnant. You know, you look around in our area and there are not a lot of churches who are committed to the scriptures anymore. Churches aren't committed to their inerrancy or to their sufficiency. Certainly people aren't committed to building their lives on the truths of the scriptures. And we're part of a very small remnant left here that is. So we've been left, if you will, with this great responsibility just to remain faithful. But we can do it remembering, of course, that God is faithful and that God has placed each one of us sovereignly here. Why? Because he desperately loves all the people that live here. And he wants to use us. He wants to use that faithful remnant to reach out and to minister and to love them on his behalf. So back to Elisha. Right? Elisha agrees to their plan. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, then one of them said, please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. Now, based on this clue, we can assume maybe this was the school that was located at Jericho. Because they were here right near to the Jordan River where they went to get their wood. And notice right off the bat here, Elisha wasn't too busy to get right in there and get his hands dirty with the guys. And just another reminder for us that if you're a follower of God, you will never graduate from the school of service. Because as we've talked about before, it's by serving those around us that we actually increase our influence in their lives and we're able to minister and to bless and to pour into them for the good of the kingdom. Never forgetting, of course, that the ministry is about the people. You know, as believers, we've been placed here sovereignly, like we said, to minister to each and every one of those people that the Lord will bring into our lives wherever and whenever he might bring them. And if you're anything like me, it's so easy to get so caught up in just doing those daily things as part of our lives that we miss out on those wonderful divine appointments that happen each and every day. Those appointments, those people that God brings into our path that we can encourage and that we can build up 
right in the midst of our everyday activities. Remember, it's not just during our spiritual times that the Lord can work, but this story is a great reminder. It's the perfect picture for our new year that God can and God will work through just the normal, everyday parts of our lives to give us opportunities to minister to people around us if we just keep ourselves available to be used. Remember, here's Elisha. He's running this school, right? No doubt he was a busy guy, and yet I think that he knew that his presence, his partnership, if you will, in this work would provide great opportunities to minister. And that's precisely what we're about to see. Because here he goes, right, together with them to begin this project. But it says in verse 5, as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, alas, master, for it was borrowed. So in the process of cutting down these trees... One of the guy's axe heads comes loose from its handle and flies into the river. So we might say that this guy just couldn't handle the situation, right? And he kind of lost his head, if you will. You guys with me at all? Lost his head. Especially, right, we see that the axe head was borrowed And so the guy completely comes unglued, right, over the whole situation. He cries out to Elisha for help. It says in verse 6 that the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. And so he cut off a stick, threw it in there, and he made the iron float. And therefore he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. So once he kind of pinpointed the spot where they thought the axe head fell, Elisha does this weird thing. He throws a stick into the river and miraculously up floats the iron axe head up to the surface. Now, how in the world did this happen? It happened miraculously, right? It's not overly complicated. It's not difficult to explain except that this was a supernatural work of God, which let's remember, that's what a miracle is. Those are the things that God does, and these are the things that God is still doing in lives today. There are things that are going to happen outside of the realm of natural explanation, and we need to be open to them, whether they're huge things or whether they're little things. This was a pretty private miracle, and yet it was miraculous nonetheless. And the fact is that God is in the habit of doing small miracles for individual individuals who are in distress and who are in need. And we can only imagine the way that this one little miracle encouraged this whole group of faithful followers, right? Encouraged them that their God was really alive and that he would be able to supernaturally provide for their needs. And understand the context here. In that day, so many of the Israelites had turned from the true God to the pagan god Baal, who was the god of provision, looking to him to provide their needs. 
And notice, not only would the Lord provide for their needs, but notice that he still wanted them to be actively participating in that work. Wouldn't it have been just as easy for God to have miraculously made the iron axe head appear in the man's hand? So why go through all this business with the stick and reaching down and throwing it in and pulling it out? Because God did what only he could do, but he still wanted men to do what they could do. We throw the stick in, he's the one that makes the iron float. We simply need to have the faith to throw the stick, right? And understand that what was happening here, there was a spiritual exchange that took place here when Elisha did his part and then God did his part. And as a result, all of these other students were greatly encouraged because it was a sign of what we need to remember that God is working in the unseen even in the little things. You know, God certainly is interested in the personal needs of his people. And he's especially, I think, interested in those little matters that are burdens to our hearts. And I think God is he's just as concerned about a lost axe head as he is about matters of huge national importance, which we're going to see later in the chapter. But the point is that God is working supernaturally and he's doing it in every facet of our lives. And he's wanting us to partner with him as we're willing and as we're able. And I think so often we can fall into that flawed thinking that our problem or whatever our situation, that it's just too small to bother God with. Have you ever been there? Certainly we will pray for somebody who has cancer and yet sometimes we're hesitant to pray about a cold, right? We'll pray for somebody's salvation, but we won't pray for their sinus infection or whatever it is. You know, remember Solomon said that it's the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. And in the same way, it's those little things in our lives. Maybe it's those little sins that we're allowing in our lives, the ones that we don't think are important enough to take to the Lord, those situations that we don't want to turn over to him, those are the things that become the big issues in our lives. They become the big issues in our hearts. And those are the things that end up blurring our vision of God's faithfulness. I think that this incident, I think that the Lord is saying to you, I think that the Lord is reminding me, yes, I am concerned about each and every insignificant detail that you are facing. I want to work with you to make it better. You just need to ask me. James said that you do not have because what? Did you guys know that or did you read that? Right? You do not have because you do not ask. And it's so easy to allow the enemy to isolate us from that care and that concern and that provision that God has for us. What Paul wrote to the Romans, he asks this question. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword and then he answers his own question. He says what? That in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we need to remember this year. Right, as we sharpen up our vision. God has numbered the hairs on our heads and he is concerned with every detail and every aspect of our lives. Just as he's concerned with big national issues. Right? That's what we're going to see as our text turns next from that account of the floating axe head to now Elisha capturing these Syrian invaders. Now keep in mind, in the history of Israel, their neighbors, Syria, were sometimes at war with them and sometimes at peace, especially during Elisha's ministry. And at this point in time, we find that the Syrians are making these little sort of commando raids in and out of Israel, right, stealing their stuff. It says in verse 8 that the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he took counsel with his servants, saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. So in preparation for another one of these raids, the Syrian king, Ben-Hadad at the time, he had planned to pitch his camp sort of on the border of Israel, and from there he could unexpectedly strike. It says in verse 9 that the man of God, so that's Elisha, sent to the king of Israel, saying, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are coming down there. And then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Now, it says in Psalm 25 that the secret of the Lord is with him who fear him. So with the king of Syria planning these attacks, God supernaturally is informing Elisha of the place, and then the prophet is passing the information on to the king of Israel, Jehoram, who was, you know, with this warning to beware, and so they're stopping the Syrians' secret attacks right in their tracks. And it appears from that last couple words there that this must have been happening over and over and over. God keeps revealing to Elisha every movement the enemy's making because though the king of Israel at this point was wicked, the Lord still had a heart for the people of Israel. He wanted to protect them and he was still working supernaturally on their behalf. It says in verse 11, therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing and he called his servants and he said to them, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel. So here he's enraged because this continued failure to surprise the Israelites, he assumes that one of his men was a traitor, right? Tipping off the enemy. And one of his servants in verse 12 said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. 
So somehow one of the officers of the king had heard of Elisha. He'd heard of his powers. He assures the king, hey, there's not a traitor. It's none of us. But it's this Elisha who somehow has supernatural knowledge of all of your most intimate conversations. Verse 13, so he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And it was told him saying, well, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and they surrounded the city. So here's the king of Syria, right, summing up the situation, at least the parts that he could see. And he believes that, hey, as long as Elisha is allowed to continue and remain free, anything I do is going to be unsuccessful. So he orders that Elisha be located and then captured and he sends this strong contingent of soldiers and completely surrounds Dothan, right? Here's this this town about 12 miles north of Samaria where Elisha was staying. Now what's interesting, just for you Bible buffs, the name Dothan means two wells and it was the home of Elisha. And I think it's interesting that, remember, Elisha had asked Elijah for what? A double portion of the Spirit. Back in chapter 4, if you read through it, you see Elisha hanging out at Shunem, which means double resting place. Here, he's living in Dothan, which means two wells. So it's interesting because Elisha truly was kind of a next-level guy, right? He was like a 2.0 kind of a guy. Now, for some of you, if you have the King James Version or some of the other translations, what you'll see is that it says that Ben-Hadad sent a great host to get Elijah. Now, just to clarify any possible confusion, no, he did not send Jimmy Fallon down there. Or even Dick Clark. What he sent was a large army. But anyway, you slice it, It certainly seems like a bit of overkill, doesn't it? He's got horses and chariots and a great army all to capture this one prophet. But I think that that's telling, don't you? Because, first of all, it's a little ironic that Ben-Hadad would even try to take Elisha by surprise. Even with a huge army. Especially... Hasn't Elisha repeatedly predicted every single plan that this guy had? And it's interesting because I think it shows us from this heathen king, in one sense, he's very, he has a fear of the power of God. That's why he wants to shut Elisha up. But in another sense, he flat out denies the power of God because he acts as if Elisha couldn't possibly know that all these soldiers were sneaking up on him. And I think the point for us is that there are so many people today, probably more people today than not, who are living in exactly that kind of a way. They have this kind of a theoretical belief in God, and yet their actions would seem to indicate otherwise. They might believe that there is a God, and yet they're living as if there isn't a God. And let that not be true of any of us in this room. Amen? Because what we see over and over throughout the scriptures is that our God is in the business of revealing his power and his majesty to anyone who's walking in disbelief. Whether it's to someone who doesn't know him 
or sometimes it's to those of us who do know him and we just need to be reminded and we need to be encouraged in our faith and we need to have our vision refreshed and refocused and that's precisely what we see next. We're here in Dothan, right? Now we're ready for the big show with the Syrian army. The next morning it says in verse 15, that when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So here, Elisha's servant gets up, he sees this army encamped all around, and no doubt he must have thought at this point the end had come. Even the great Elisha couldn't wiggle out of this one. Now, stop again and think with me just for a minute, because I think it's kind of revealing. Here, Elisha's servant's anxiety over this whole situation, I think, uncovers for us, at least to some extent, kind of a lack of understanding of, maybe a lack of trust in the Lord, which wouldn't we have thought that having witnessed all the other miracles that Elisha had done, that that wouldn't be a problem? You see my point? Here we're talking about a guy who's in prophet school, right? He's in, you know, Bible college. This is somebody in full-time vocational ministry. We're not talking about some uneducated, unbelieving heathen here. But even though he'd been with Elijah, he'd seen all the miracles, still he wavered in his faith. And he wavered in his faith in these times, in these situations, when he was facing overwhelming difficulty because he did what we so often do, which is what? He looked at his circumstances, right? He allowed his vision and his perspective to be blurred, right? His sights to be taken off the Lord. He looked at the scene and he forgot that God was working in the unseen. Right? He looked at the natural and he completely discounted the supernatural. We could only assume he'd been right there. He'd seen this experience with the axe head, you know, seeing that God was concerned with even the smallest detail and yet he couldn't trust God in this bigger situation. Again, the mistake that we can make, he applied his own limitations, his own weaknesses. He put those onto God. And so what happens is he cries out, alas, my Lord, what shall we do? Was this problem any bigger to God? Was an army of Syrians any bigger of a problem than a lost iron axe head? Of course not. But so often we can look at the hopelessness of a certain situation and we can cry out, oh no, Lord. You know, there's nothing that I can do. How in the world are we going to get out of this one. I know I've done that. Things can look hopeless when we start to assume like the servant did that because it's difficult or overwhelming for us that somehow that means it should be difficult or it should be overwhelming for God when it's not. And what happened is he was undone and unnerved because of this. Notice next Elisha Right, who is called the man of God, he saw things a little bit differently. Look what he says in verse 16. So he answered, Do not fear, 
For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, given the situation, understand, there is a great army encamped around them. So what Elisha is saying here doesn't even make any sense. Unless Elisha somehow knows something that no one else knows. Look at verse 17. It says that Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So verse 16 Right? Do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That is as true for us as Christians today as it was for Elisha and the servant on this day. Paul would again conclude that he says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And in order to show this to the servant, Elisha asks the Lord in verse 17 to open the servant's eyes to the spiritual reality that surrounded them. And then God gives the servant this ability to see into the normally unseen world of invisible spirits, right? Angels that are constantly present and ready to carry out God's plans to protect and to provide for his people, even in the face of what seemed to us to be the most overwhelming odds. So, It's simple, but contrary to what the servant could see, the actual truth was that it was the Lord who had surrounded the armies of Syria. It was the Lord who was in complete control of the situation. And what I love is that notice that Elisha didn't pray that God would change anything in the situation, but all he asked is that the servant could start to see the reality of the situation because they were protected all along but the servant simply didn't know it because he just couldn't see it the truth was that the whole time all around Elisha there were these thousands of angels that were surrounding and protecting them this is an amazing scene it's an awesome glimpse into the reality of the supernatural what I think is awfully strange but I want you to consider this, is that in God's economy, the real reality is actually the reality that we really can't actually see. Right? The real reality is actually the reality that we really can't actually see. That's what's real. What's real is the things that are happening in the spiritual realm. They are far more real than anything that's happening here in the physical realm. And I believe that that's why God shows us this. Because the reality is in our lives that things are never really what they seem. And I think that he would have us to be reminded of that as we begin a new and hopefully a faith-filled year The reality is that God is with us more than we will ever know. Think about it. If any harm was to come to Elisha or the servant, then the armies of Syria were going to have to go through all of these angelic warriors first. So God's protection is there always upon us. Our worry, our unbelief 
doesn't change the fact that he is there protecting us. We are just as protected as we stick with Jesus as the servant was when he stuck there close to Elisha. But here's the truth. Our protection is sure, and yet our sense of peace is completely dependent upon the way that we see things spiritually. Does that make sense? It's dependent upon our vision being sharpened to see into the realm of the spirit, the things which we can't actually see, those things which we're encouraged over and over, we just have to trust by faith. And ultimately, it's all of these things that are unlocked through prayer. Because when a person is blind to that spiritual reality, only God can open our eyes. He can use words of someone to prompt it, and yet the work of spiritually opening eyes is a spiritual work, and prayer is always the key to that, right? to sharpening our spiritual vision, because it's prayer that opens our eyes and really allows us to be able to see beyond those obstacles that we think are right in front of us. This is a stupid story, but maybe it'll help us remember this. I heard a story about a brother and a sister who were watching TV together. And the five-year-old sister went and sat directly in front of the TV set. And her little brother said, hey, you know, could you please move? Maybe he wasn't quite that nice about it. But her response was, and who knows if maybe she was even thinking of the story, she says, well, why don't you just pray about it, brother, and you'll be able to see right through anything that's in your way. Now, some have suggested that this may well have been the very first instance of pray-per-view TV. <laughs> pray-per-view TV. Right? So our greatest need right, is to have our eyes opened spiritually. And the fact is that they are opened initially when we're saved, but there's a continual need to ask the Lord to give us this sense of increased spiritual vision and revelation. One of the great prayers that Paul prays for the Ephesians, he prays that the Lord of our God, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. What a great example of what we all need. Right? That people would understand the hope that's in Jesus. That they would know the tremendous treasure that's theirs as God's people. Right? That they would recognize how great God's power is towards each and every one of us. And we need to be able to see this with increasing clarity, right? His hope and his love and his riches and his provision for all of us, Paul says, who believe. And yet the fact is that this takes time, right? It's a process. And you remember the story, remember in Mark chapter 8, it's the account where Jesus heals that blind man at Bethsaida, 
right? And it's one, it's the one where Jesus, it says, where he put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything, and he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. And then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Now, this is one of the most intriguing, I think, miracles that Jesus performs. It's the only progressive healing that we see from Jesus. And what's interesting about it is it comes right after an incident with the disciples earlier in Mark chapter 8 that highlights their own spiritual blindness. So understand, it's not at all that the healing didn't work the first time Jesus tried it. That's just foolish, right? But the truth is that Jesus chose this method at this time as an illustration to his disciples showing them that their own spiritual blindness that they had just been talking about, showing them that it would be healed, but that the healing would be gradual. So you couldn't say after the first Time Jesus touched the man. You couldn't say that he was still blind, but you also couldn't say that he was seeing clearly. And yet this is so typical of people when we first come to the Lord, right? We've been saved, but we still don't see everything clearly the way that the Lord would have us to see it. And what I love about this miracle is that we see that then there was this fresh touch of Jesus again and a shifting of the man's focus upward toward heaven and then his vision became truly clear and that is precisely what we need and when we start to see that happen right when we start to see that our eyes like the servants here then we start to see our eyes opened not just to the presence of the spiritual realm but really to the power of the armies of the Lord that are operating there as it says in Psalm 34, that the angels of the Lord encamp around all those who fear him and he delivers them. And I think that this text should be a great reminder to us of that truth that the battle truly belongs to the Lord. And that his weapons are far superior to anything that the world can throw at us. Don't you think it's significant that what the servant saw there in the realm of the spirit is that those hills all around Dothan, they ha- what did they have on them? They didn't have giants. They didn't have lions. They didn't have some sort of esoteric sort of representation of the power of God. But what did he see? He saw chariots. Remember, Elisha and the servant, they were surrounded by chariots that had been made by human strength. Right? Chariots of worldly power and man-made opposition. And yet what God provided in response to that, what declared his own power was the, were these fantastic chariots of fire that must have made the iron chariots that the Syrians were driving look a little bit silly. Right? Paul said that though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. 
always remember that. When we're under pressure, right, when you find that the world is doing its best, right, when they're bringing out all the iron chariots to try to destroy and to try to take away our hope or to hurt the people that we love, remember that the kinds of threats that are being mounted are no match for the powerful weapons that are provided to us by the Lord. Right? Ephesians 6, it's the belt of truth and it's the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is what? It's the word of God. Right? Prayer and faith and the sustaining power of the spirit of God. Okay, they've got iron chariots, great. Well, we got chariots too, amen? But they're chariots of fire and they're chariots of power. So given that, you know, what about us? Are, are we the ones who are crying out, alas, my master, what can I do? Or are we the ones that are hearing the words, do not fear? That those who are for you are greater than those who are against you. So let's continue to be asking the Lord to open our eyes to his truth, open our eyes to the presence in our lives so that we can increasingly start to see things clearly. And I just think that knowing these things Knowing that the servants of the Lord are there to protect us. Knowing that God is working in areas that we can't see. Knowing how mighty the weapons that are at our disposal are. That should encourage us and it should strengthen us in all of the personal battles as we're trying to walk by faith. Right? Walking by faith and not by sight. Because eyes of faith understand the nearness of the presence of God. And eyes of faith trust even when they can't see a reason to trust. You know, as we're walking into this new year, remember, walking by faith is just a fancy way of saying that we should make our moment-by-moment decisions in our lives based on the invisible truths of the Lord rather than on the physical, visible things that we can see around us. And then we just need to trust that the Lord's going to work through these things that even we can't see just the way he promised he would. Now watch this. As we're going to finish up, they took away my clock, so I have actually no idea what time it is. Now I do, and I'm super late, but we're going to finish this up. Through the power, through the plan of the Lord, the God's about to perform this awesome dual miracle through Elijah, and he's going to bring about this incredibly unexpected resolution. Look at verse 18. It says that when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, and he said, Strike this people, I pray, pray with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. Exactly. But he led them, it says, to Samaria. Now, I don't know about you, but this to me sounds like the original Jedi mind trick. Doesn't it? Almost as if the soldiers that he's talking to, do you think that they repeated back to Elisha, this is not the way, you know, nor is this the city, you know. We're awfully glad you're here or whatever, you know. 
Isn't it so? The Lord not only opens the eyes of Elisha's servant; now He blinds the eyes of the invaders as they were coming to take Elisha. Which, by the way, is just a great reminder that if you're fighting against the Lord, you are always only going to end up in darkness and confusion, and probably trapped right in enemy territory. Because here, then, Elijah tricks these guys into following him. He leads the entire invading all the Syrian soldiers right inside of the walls of Samaria, which was then the capital of Israel. So it was verse 20, when they'd come to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria. Now you almost have to laugh. And this is one of these verses where I think it's proof that God has a good sense of humor. Imagine here are these Syrian soldiers. Their eyes are opened and they're standing right in the middle of the capital city of the very people that they're trying to invade. Who could have ever imagined this kind of a resolution? Right? The Lord through Isaiah says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And yet, can't we get so stuck in whatever solution we see that we think that that's the only possible way that this could work out? And yet the Lord says, you know what, I've got a different way that I want to do this. Because what the Lord just accomplished For the Israelite army to have accomplished this, there would have been much fighting, much bloodshed, much loss of life, and yet God just did it peacefully through the work of one man working supernaturally. So the Syrian soldiers, they discovered, they're surrounded, they're these helpless captives, they're at the mercy of the king of Israel. It says in verse 21 that when the king of Israel saw them, He said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master And so the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. So here Elisha stops the king from killing these captives. God was the one who captured them, right? God was the one who was going to get the glory. Isn't it interesting? The king says, shall I kill them? Elisha not only says, no, don't kill them, but then he goes on to say that they should be cared for. They should be ministered to so that they could then be sent back, I think, to report to their own king about the kindness of Israel. It would have made more sense for Elisha to say, yeah, let's execute these guys. But instead, what does he say in verse 20? He says, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. Remember, the way of God so often is not to destroy our enemies but to win our enemies over and to open up their eyes. There's no time when the authority of God is more powerfully in play than when we reach out and love our enemies, than when we overcome 
evil with good. And when we're able to impart life rather than fighting back against the people who are threatening it, right? When we're able to actually bless those who are cursing us. Because remember, the soldiers here were not the real enemy. The real enemy in whatever your present battle is, is not your husband. It's not your wife. The real enemy is not your parents or your family or your boss. The real enemy is not that friend who hurt you. It's not that Christian brother or sister that did something wrong to you. Remember, there is always more going on here than meets the eye. This is a spiritual battle. And understand that there's nothing the enemy likes to do more than take Christians and stir up strife and divide us and conquer. And Paul says that this battle won't be won by fighting with those around us. Right? He's not going to be won by fighting the things that we think we can see. It's not going to be won by fighting in the flesh with fleshly weapons, it's going to be one with the spiritual weapons which God gives us, which are weapons like the Spirit of God working through the Word of God to bring about restoration and to bring reconciliation and to bring peace and to bring healing. The battle truly belongs to the Lord and it is fought, it is won, it is lost in the world of the spiritual, in the world of the unseen. So if you want to start seeing the battle won, Start seeing things the way that they really are. Start looking through spiritual eyes. Start praying that God would enable us to see the way that he sees. But to do that, we need to, all, we need to be able to not only see what's happening in the earthly realm, but in the spiritual realm, and we need to do it at the same time. I know we're short on time, but maybe this is a picture that will help us. There's this funny fish that's called four eyes. And it's found in the rivers of Central and in South America. And what's, of course, you can see unique about this fish is it has these huge bulging eyes. And from the pictures, you can see that the eyes are placed on his head so that he can spend his time basically cruising along the water. And with the upper half of his eye, he can see what's happening above the surface. And with the lower half of his eye, he can see what's happening below the surface. And what the fish experts, I don't even know what you call a fish expert, but what the fish experts tell us is that the top half has kind of a normal lens that's enabled them to see up into the sky, but the bottom half of the same eye has this kind of a water lens that looks down into the river. So it's kind of like fish bifocals, right? And so the fish can see clearly in both realms, up into the sky and down below in the water where they live. And it's this same kind of discerning double vision that we need to have as Christians. We need to have our eyes fixed both on the world around us, right, where we're living, but we also need to have our eyes fixed at the same time above us, up into the realm of the Spirit where God is working. We're always going to find plenty of problems down below the surface, right? And yet we can always look up and we can count on the way that the Lord is working in an unseen way to fix those problems. So whatever issue it is that you're walking into this new year hoping for resolution to, I want you to remember this funny four-eyed fish. 
right? And let's just pray that God would give us the same kind of spiritual vision to see the way that he's working at the same time in both realms. Whether we need to see a marriage or a family or some other relationship healed or whether we need to see the unsaved come to know the Lord or whether we're just trying to understand the things that are happening around us or the things that are happening to us. We just need to do what Elisha did. We need to recognize that God's working in every aspect of our lives. We need to depend on the work he's doing as the solution to whatever struggle that we're facing. And we need to remember that God is constantly working supernaturally through all of those natural circumstances. And we just need to adjust our vision so that we can refresh our focus and we can see what it is that he's doing. Now, this morning we're going to take communion. And I can't think of a better way to kick off the new year, not just with our fresh sense of cool vision, right? but really with a, a time to remember what that's all based on. Everything we have, everything that we are as Christians comes back to the cross, comes back to the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And that's what we remember as we celebrate communion. If you don't know the Lord this morning, we can fix that. We have people that will be up here that would love to pray with you and answer questions for you and help you understand what it means to start a relationship with Christ or to begin that walk with the Lord. Um, we don't have closed communion here. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are welcome to participate in communion with us. So let's just take some time as Kissy and the team come back up and um, let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless this time of communion. And uh, when we're done, we'll uh, do some worship and uh, head out for some smoothies. Amen. So Father, we thank you.